0: ESPN, in partnership with Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, present Moxie Betts. Make bets with Moxie with betting expert Katie Mox and her merry band of gambling insiders as they preview lines, spreads, parlays, and props with personality and the kind of advice they would give themselves. That's Moxie Betts. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. He was the face of the New York Yankees and the most admired player in baseball. The captain tells the story of Derek Jeter's life and Hall of Fame career. Catch episode two on Thursday, July 21st at 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN and streaming on ESPN Plus. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want, actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here, talking to me.
1: Hi, I'm Matt Quinn, and my honestly current dilemma is that my air conditioning is so loud. It is so loud. It's the loudest thing I've ever heard.
0: Okay, well, you know, this is one of those issues that seems very important right at this moment. You know, how will you do a podcast with loud AC in the background? But actually, quite nice later. You have AC, thank God. And, you know, the loud hum sort of acts like a sound machine when you're sleeping. Bonus. So while I respect the annoyance at this exact moment, I reject this as a grievance. And I humbly suggest that you spin this annoyance into an opportunity for some gratitude practice. Thank goodness I'm lucky enough to have AC in the summer. And also a reminder that last time you were on, your dilemma was a hole in your socks. So life is good, man. Truly, you are a man of first world problems.
1: That's what she said.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, episode 351. This week I'm welcoming back Matt Quinn, the lead singer and guitarist for the band Mount Joy. He's now part of the Two-Timers Club, which now that I've said it, doesn't sound right. I think we have to wait for higher numbers there to avoid uh, uh, the unfortunate many meanings of two-timing. All this to say just that Matt's been on the pod before. Uh, A year and some change ago, in fact. It was a few months after I went to see Mount Joy live for the first time. Uh, It was a drive-in show in the midst of COVID 2020. uh, And before I had the chance to meet Matt and the rest of the band and dive even deeper into their truly, truly excellent catalog. So if you're not familiar with Mount Joy, get familiar. They might just become your new favorite band. Five-piece indie group Matt founded along with his guitarist uh, and high school buddy, Sam Cooper. And they've got a bit of a sound that they say is influenced by Bob Dylan, Grateful Dead, Paul Simon, the Beatles, some contemporaries like Alabama Shakes, Vampire Weekend. I highly recommend going back and listening to our first conversation back in February of 2021. And you can hear about how the band came together, about how both Matt and Sam went to law school before finding their way back together to playing music. Um, They found their bassist, Michael, on Craigslist, and then they added keyboardist Jackie and drummer Sotiris. Um, And uh, last time we talked about Matt's Philly sports fandom, his songwriting style, how the band really rose to prominence after their uh, 2016 debut. And they've just been touring and, uh, you know, building their fan base ever since. Um, They've now released Orange Blood, their third full-length album, and it rocks. It is one of those no-skips first listen bangers that gets better every time i listen to it um, so we talked about making the record both in joshua tree and out east uh, different substances that can aid in songwriting uh, the difference between what it feels like writing a breakup record versus one while you're in the midst of a new love what it's like to be a frontman and embrace that role We also talked about where Mount Joy's music intersects with sort of social issues or can act as an escape from them. And we got deep with it. We started talking about, you know, the balance of our everyday needs and interests and news with our larger appreciation of the world and nature and the beauty of the earth. Um, I love this convo. Uh, Enjoy my conversation with Matt and Find Orange Blood, their latest album. I bet you'll find yourself loving the band as much as I do.
1: That's what she said.
0: Okay, so since we last spoke, Matt, Things have, things have really escalated, as they would say, in Anchorman. Um, in a positive way, though, uh, Brick didn't kill a guy. We, uh, we are seeing you on these incredible tours. You sold out Red Rocks, um, Bonnaroo, Newport Folk Fest, Lollapalooza, Made in America. You've got a certified gold record, silver lining, 100 million plus Spotify streams and counting. Um, how's the ride been over the last year plus or so since I last talked to you?
1: No, pretty, pretty crazy. Um, you know, we were, I guess, stuck in a pandemic. I remember sitting on the couch in very pandemic vibes. Um, <laughs> I guess we're still stuck in the pandemic. It yeah, just feels are. like we're now, we're just like street fighting it. Um, <laughs> uh, but, uh, it's been crazy. We were making a record. We put that record out and it feels, feels really good. We've been, you know, it's been responding well live, which is kind of like my biggest fear. Um, because people can like actively throw things at you if they don't like it, like they're right there. Um, So that's been good. It's been good.
0: You mentioned COVID. I mean, you released your last album in the summer of 2020. So you had to come up with creative ways to get the record out there, to connect with your fans. In fact, I first found your music when you did one of those uh, weird now to think about uh, virtual performances on Samantha Bee's show Full Frontal where you were all in like different rooms, but you do your tracks and you connect them all. Um, how different does it feel now? Because that was your first experience with real fame as a band. And so now it's almost like doing it the normal way where you actually put out a record and then tour on it is not the norm for you all.
1: Yeah, I can say it feels really good. Um, <laughs> there was something you know, like you're trying to quell your anxiety during the pandemic, but, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of professions that felt like, I don't know if this is going to work, but music, especially it was, Mm -hmm. it was right on the edge of like, I don't know if anyone was going to ever attend a zoom concert again. Um, (laughs) so it feels really good, you know, just like walking out and, you know, not to be too cliche or whatever, but there's something like really special about like Walking out and just the energy of a crowd, whether it's sports or music, and um, I think it's important to bring people together like that. So it feels it feels really good.
0: I don't think that's cliche at all. And I think we talked about this last time, potentially like the closest I've ever felt to being a rock star is being on the parade buses for the Blackhawks and Cubs world championships. And I knew they weren't cheering for me. Like it was very occasionally, occasionally someone would yell my name and I'd be like, Hey, it is me. Like You know me, but I knew for the most part, they were not cheering for me. And yet the energy of thousands and thousands of people screaming at you and sending you their good vibes is irreplaceable. There's no other real feeling for it. And I think a lot of studies are going to come out of the pandemic talking about the things that we didn't quite understand about what human beings share when they're in the same room together versus talking over the phone or Zoom, right? Like all the ways that psychosomatic energy and our bodies actually react to being together. Um, So it's not cliche at all, That I mean, especially for music, it's just different in person. What's it like being the front man, because you are a very chill dude, but you have a lot of opinions. You are the the main songwriter. So it, it makes sense as the vocalist and lead guitarist and all this, but it's also a job to represent the whole group every once in a while. That's a lot of pressure.
1: Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I try to, um, and I've been thinking about this a lot lately as the world gets increasingly crazier each day it feels like but you know I try to just let the music I work really hard to like try to make songs that are meaningful to me and that you know maybe have a message that's whether it's hidden or like really on the nose and lately I feel like just been trying to um, lead with that as much as possible and then you know on platforms where you, you know, you know, the platforms. Uh, I
0: know, unfortunately, <laughs> um,
1: you know, trying to be vocal in this sort of non-musical setting, I guess. But, you know, in terms of the, the music and, and everything like that, like I really um, am trying to you know, let the music speak for itself. And then that's a challenge, you know, as a writer. And like I said, I'm a pretty like laid back guy. And I find, you know, sometimes I'm like pushed to say something and and I will, but that's hard for me. It's hard for me to like try to be someone maybe that I'm not like really designed to be. So just let the music speak for itself. And then, you know, let people know where I stand.
0: What about on stage? How natural is it for you to lead the band vocally, but also sort of in terms of energy and performance and interacting with the crowd?
1: You know, I think it's become uh, natural in terms of, uh, you know, saying stuff and, 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 stuff like that. But honestly, we're lucky because uh, as a band, I think we have great chemistry. Our like sports analogy, I think would be <laughs> a, t- a team that, you know, I think we have highly skilled players, but um, we're also, you know, as much as it pains me to say, like watching those the Miami Heat teams, I'm always like drawn to the Eric Spolstra sort of like they have that element of play together and they play with great energy and i think you
0: can say you could say heat culture i mean I'm, I'm i can't believe it's this early in the pod we've already gotten the heat <laughs> culture but you could say it
1: yeah you know i mean as a sixers fan we we lack that um and i mm-hmm. think i really think that uh i think mount joy just sort of naturally been playing the same five people been doing this we've gone all over the country together we've been through a lot uh no free agents have been signed um <laughs> It's just us. And we, we have that energy together and we, we, you know, some nights I don't have that energy, you know, it's like, it's, it's hard traveling and, and other people pick it up. It's so we're really lucky in that way.
0: I wonder, i just rewatched almost famous and there's this tension within the band about, about Russell Hammond getting too much love. So how do you balance the members of the band wanting to do interviews or ask their opinion on the, the new album or to be out front more, or is there a natural sort of give and take?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think like for me, I don't have any specific, like, you know, I have to do all the interviews or anything like that. I think it's it, it sort of happens naturally because I do write all the lyrics and um, the vast majority of the composing, you know, as far as songwriting. Um, is me so you know as, if there are questions um, sometimes we do group interviews and it, it can actually be a little bit awkward because if the questions are more specific to the the songs then it's a little bit weird you know like if you um, wrote an article about something and like the entire around the horn cast sat there to answer <laughs> questions about it it's like it feels a little bit off right. so it kind of naturally finds its way but if someone wants to you know, talk about the piano playing or things that I, I didn't do or or didn't have like a soul, you know, I guess ownership feels like a terrible word for that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, then then it, it's it's more obvious. And, and I think we do we do a decent job. I mean, I guess that's maybe a better question for the rest of the band. Maybe they're sitting somewhere like uh, very upset at this podcast.
0: Oh, don't worry. I'm going to interview all of them separately and then add their their opinions into this at the end so that they can get in, you know, all those digs that they've been holding back. Um, you mentioned the writing. So you have this new album, Orange Blood. It's absolutely fantastic. And all bands are different and who writes and who creates. And and then when the song is, is first born, the evolution of it and the different iterations before it becomes the album version and the, and the art version that you play live. So for you specifically and for your band, maybe technically in addition to creatively, can you take me through like the birth and evolution of a new song?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's been different. We've made three albums. and what I, One thing I think is cool is like each one has been pretty different. Um, this one was most similar to the first one in that the first one, there was no band. Um, it was just Sam and I out in um, Los Angeles, writing songs and putting them together, and then once we we had the song recorded, we, we realized we needed a band to go play it, and that was you know the genesis of Mount Joy. But uh, then the second one was more of like everyone kind of got thrown into the fire. We'd been touring really hard, and you know you get thrown into a studio for a limited amount of time and had some song ideas that I had, but you know you're really leaning on each other to kind of fill it out a little more. And then obviously this third album, Orange Blood, is made during a pandemic where I'm on the East Coast with Sam. Uh, we rented a barn, which was really cool, um, on this woman's property. She had it like up on either Craigslist or Zillow, and we um, found so it. So rock
0: star of you, to dis- and or, or J.J. Watt, um, you know, disappear <laughs> to a log cabin or a barn and get your shit together.
1: <laughs> I guarantee you J.J. Watt's version of a log cabin and, uh, and what ours yes. was were like very different his um, did have
0: an elevator so i'm i'm a little suspect still on exactly what log cabin has an elevator
1: yeah no no this was uh his is like the taj mahal compared to ours (laughs) i guarantee um but no it was a great space and uh, we actually recorded some of the songs in there and we would just go there kind of like treat it like a nine to five and just write and hang and honestly the world was in such a crazy state that it felt really good to like have a place to go that um for the most part, didn't have COVID and, um, and just make music. And so we would we would write the songs there, we flew in our producer who made some of the first songs, Caleb Nelson. And he did an amazing job, like some of it was recorded right there in the barn. And then, you know, we flew out to LA, we were sending demos around to the band who were some of them were in LA, and some of them were in uh, Jackie was in Portland, Oregon. And they're just such talented musicians that for them, it's like, you know, they see the they see what's happening and they see where they can fit in and and we're lucky because, you know, when they when they get on a on a track they just they make it better.
0: You've done some interviews about the album and uh, the there's a track called Orange Blood. It's also the title of the album. And you said Orange Blood is the light that rises each morning and decorates our world, regardless of what's happening in your world. We're all connected by this energy and we really are so important to each other, despite the forces that divide us. You also said my dream for this record is that it gives people a chance to be present and connect with something outside of the daily doom scroll. All of that checks out. I think it's like those things that we've all been thinking about and having to face head on over the last couple of years during the pandemic. But also there's so much imagery in this album that feels like and has been described as sort of a desert acid trip. Um, So it's funny to think that you were in a barn on the East Coast. You mentioned in one of the interviews you were in Joshua Tree. Who was there and when was that? And was that sort of a little kernel that inspired the rest of the album?
1: Yeah. So um, I don't exactly know when it was, but at some point during this incredibly long um, (laughs) pandemic that we're going through towards the beginning, I I was actually living in Los Angeles, but I had kind of gotten stuck in New York city. I went to see about my now girlfriend. um, Went to see about a girl. Exactly. Thank (laughs) you for getting the reference. Um, (laughs) I went to uh, New York city thinking I was going to move in with a new lady and this was early March of the start of the pandemic. And obviously things got pretty tricky in New York city in March of 2020, um, which is a whole nother podcast, I guess. But, uh, <laughs> you know, so at that point I decided to, to move, I grew up in Philly, decided to move home. Like I was like, all right, you know, I'm going to be the, the first good boyfriend move is going to get, get this girl out of New York city. <laughs> um, and so we moved, down to Philly, but I actually still had an apartment in LA because my plan was to go back there. And so we moved, we were going to move our stuff out of LA and in doing so we stopped in Joshua tree. Um, and it was me, uh, my girlfriend, my little brother and Sam from the band. And, um, yeah, we, we did the whole Joshua tree thing. You know, I think everyone knows what that is. And,
0: uh, some, some just- more, some people just go there and look at cactus and, drive around, but you, what? by the whole Joshua Tree thing, give, give me some more details.
1: You know, um, there's a, I guess there's a, at least musically, there's a spirit there. Like, um, Graham Parsons sort of has a famous, I guess, like sad death story, but he, he has a history right. there. And I guess there's just a history there of doing, you know, hallucinating and being one with the desert and trying to connect with the spirit that's there. And I'm I'm a huge like Grant Parsons fan. And and so there was, there was an element of like trying to find where they, his friends like spread his ashes. If you don't know that story, you should go look up the Grant Parsons ashes story. Um, if you're listening to this, it's just a crazy story.
0: Okay, so brief Graham Parsons aside for those who are unfamiliar. He was a member of the Flying Burrito Brothers in the 1960s and got really fascinated with Joshua Tree National Park, visiting a couple times. And he had told his manager, Phil Kaufman, that when he died, he wanted to be cremated and have his ashes spread there. This will be important later. Okay, so during recording sessions in 1973 that were later released on 1974's Grievous Angel, Parsons started taking heroin again. He was back using the drug when he visited Joshua Tree in September of 73. He was with his high school girlfriend, his assistant, and his assistant's girlfriend. So they spent some time in the desert during the days, and then they'd go to local bars at night, take barbiturates, drink a lot of alcohol. On September 18th, he was injected with morphine by one of the people in his group. He overdosed. He died at Joshua Tree Inn, and they later determined the cause to be a combination of several days of whiskey and barbiturates and cocaine and yada yada. Then things get weird. Okay, so let's take a journey together via Wikipedia, shall we? Here's what it says. Parsons road manager, Kaufman, and assistant Martin had arrived at LAX in Martin's girlfriend's 1953 Cadillac hearse and impersonated workers of a funeral parlor, claiming that Parsons family had arranged for them to take the body to New Orleans via a chartered flight departing from Van Nuys Airport. The cargo manager couldn't find the transfer request among his papers, but assumed it was a last-minute change and decided to release the body to the two men. Kaufman signed the papers as, quote, Jeremy Nobody, and proceeded to request a patrolman who parked behind the hearse to move his car away so that he could load up the casket. The patrolman then helped Kaufman and Martin, who were struggling to move the coffin. As a result of his nervousness in the presence of the patrolman and his previous consumption of alcohol, Martin drove the car into a wall of the hangar in front of the officer. Patrolman evidently didn't suspect them of any illegal activity, and off the two went with Graham Parson's body. When they arrived at Joshua Tree, Kaufman opened the casket, poured in five gallons of gasoline, set the body on fire, and left. On their way back to L.A., the two stopped off to sleep off their drunkenness, and when they woke up, the hearse didn't start. So Kaufman had to hike to find a mechanical shop. The hearse starts up again after a few repairs. The two return to the road, where they're later involved in a car pileup in the highway and rear-end another car. A police officer handcuffs both of them when several beer cans fall out of the vehicle as one of the doors open. When the officer went to assure that no other drivers were hurt in the accident, Martin slipped his hand out of the cuffs and ran away with Kaufman. Since the officer didn't take the driver's license of either one of them, or even take the license plate number, he couldn't identify them. Okay, so following the theft of the body being reported, the casket was then sighted burning by campers at Joshua Tree, who told park authorities. A green Western Airlines body bag was found next to the casket. The body wasn't thoroughly cremated, though. 35 pounds remained. Ew. Witnesses reported seeing a hearse speeding away from the scene, recalling that other vehicles had been forced off the road. After mugshots of the perpetrators were shown to witnesses from the airport, investigator Joe Hamilton declared the police were close to identifying and Kaufman and Martin were indeed identified from the mugshots, arrested and charged with grand theft. They were given 30-day suspended jail sentences, fined $300 each for misdemeanor theft. And charged seven hundred and eight dollars for funeral home expenses. Kaufman threw a benefit party to raise funds to pay the fines of the funeral. The event was called Kaufman's Coffin Caper Concert. It was DJed by Doctor Demento, and they served beer in bottles with the figure of Graham Parsons on the label and the inscription "Graham Pilsner, a stiff drink for what ails you." A l e s. So yeah, that's the Graham Parsons story.
1: We did that, and you know, I think the the main like takeaway from that experience and people who have tripped or whatever have have maybe felt this too, is that like, there is this intense, you know, micro argument that we're in all the time about like how we should govern each other or, you know, how we should, I don't know, diplomacy, all of these sort of like things exist exist in this very frustrating vacuum where no one ever can agree and all this stuff. But all of the while, while that's happening, like we live, you know, and I'm not breaking news here, but we live on this like extraordinarily beautiful planet under extraordinary circumstances. And every day there is this like ridiculous phenomenon of the earth spinning around and the sun coming up and going down and pulling the stars over our heads. And there there is this like part of you that needs to be engaged with that argument uh, amongst how we should treat people and how equality and and so many things that are like super important but I actually think it's like equally important to be as engaged with that beauty and the sort of like macro like your existence here uh, as far as we know it and um, yeah I think just it was really important for me to like get back in touch with that and like start to learn about the stars I realized I don't really know anything about the stars (laughs) and yeah it was just a great trip and, and that really inspired like the sort of tenor of the record.
0: Have you seen that picture that just started going around from NASA of the cosmos? It's unbelievable. It does. It, it looks like art. It doesn't look like it could possibly be real.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's funny you say that because and it, we're doing this interview on the day that they released that image, which is incredible. I think it's the James Webb. Um, yeah. Yeah. The
0: telescope. space telescope. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Incredible. And we were talking last night, actually, like that, it looked like a painting and then you realize, like, well, paintings are just of uh, these things that exist naturally, which is sort of yeah. like, um, sort of yeah. what I'm trying to get at is that, like, we, we get so sucked in that we describe a phenomenon as looking like a painting. Right. But the reality is that the painting the, is of the phenomenon. It's a reflection you know? of the
0: phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think what you just talked about is a conflict that many of us have. I very specifically have. Where as soon as I get out of a city and into a wide open space, I think, how could I possibly choose to live in a city when I Hmm. could be here all the time? But then when I'm there for long enough, I think, okay, I want to go back to the city because I want to be more by people and concerts and theater and culture. Right. And there's as much culture to be found in the natural world as there is in presentations of it or reflections of it in the culture and the content that we create they're just digested differently. And I think balancing the two is like the secret to me, but it's very hard to feel balanced when you're in one or the other. Like you literally would almost have to live in nature and then drive every day to go do other stuff and then still return to it to feel that you were really giving both like they're due. And it, that's what you said about the album that when you were in Joshua Tree, you thought about all the sad things And you said, we wanted to build something that found beauty in the fact that the world has always been crazy. We were trying to find a way to be present enough to appreciate our surroundings, even if they're in decay. That's it. Like, how do you, particularly with climate change and actual threats to the environment and the planet on which we live, how do you appreciate it while simultaneously understanding that we're the greatest threat to it and that those conversations that we want to avoid those polarizing debates that feel insignificant when compared to the like cosmos, the grandness of it all are so necessary because otherwise we can't come together to like, stop what we're doing to the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, if I had like a really good answer for that, like, (laughs) uh, (laughs) you know, it wasn't
0: even a question, so I can't blame you for not having one.
1: (laughs) No, but, but you're, you're, you're nailing it. Like, I think, um, I think that the truth is is and what i what I try to remind myself and and during the process of making this is that like there's this feeling I have that like you know, we've become this very tribal thing on, to to the point you're making where where you know maybe half the people or, or hopefully more agree with you, and then so there are some detractors. But I think the reality is is that you can get really caught up in the detractors or you can get really focused on people that are, are with you and the people that, you know, really believe in what you're saying. And I think we do, you and I have talked about this, I think, you know, about that there are people who disagree with you uh, about climate change or, or whatever it is. And, and that's preposterous to you and I, but it doesn't really matter, you know, like what that means to us. And that's kind of what I was talking about when I said like, we're so important to each other because we do agree a lot um, we, we're getting to a place, I think, where things are feeling critical, feels like it's critical for everyone to agree with us. But I don't think that's true. I think that's a I think that's an anxiety. It's a projection of a fear that if, if not everyone agrees on some something so simple as climate change, then how are we going to solve it? And I think the reality is, is that we actually need smart human beings like the ones taking pictures of, you know, light from 13 billion <laughs> years ago. To um to attack this stuff the exact way that they are, with the support of people like yourself who care deeply about the planet and 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 stuff like that. And I don't want this to get like too heady. I'm not an <laughs> astronomer, but I, I, I do try to and and I get, I'm not saying I sit here in this like perfect view of the world. Like I get super frustrated with trolls and, and all of that stuff, but I do just try to remind myself that there are so many people that care and and care for the right reasons and. It's just way easier to focus on those people and and let the chips fall where they may, I guess. This is our life. This is all we get.
0: I mostly agree with you. I think one thing I've come around on lately is that the feeling that a certain group of people who deny climate or gun violence or who believe that the hologram of a long dead politician is going to show up or that they never really died and they've been hiding Like those things that seem absurd and like those people don't share our reality felt much more fringe. And I think if we treat them as such, we run the risk of allowing it to grow. And so I do think some of those great minds, not the stars ones, but the ones who focus on other great expertise, need to focus on bringing those people back from where they've been lost to. Because I do consider some parts of the Internet sort of like a black hole to keep the uh, space analogy going where once you've gotten sucked in and you've lost connection to whether news has been vetted or what the source is or who's saying it, then you can get really dangerous. And the more and more people that grow in that group, the more it's not a fringe anymore. And it represents like a massive voting group. And that's how policymakers become people who truly don't believe in the realities in which we live. So I agree with you on focusing on the connected people that we can make change with, but also not totally losing sight of the humans that we're sort of losing to this thing that we don't know how to control as humans, this spread of information, this way of communicating that we've just never had before in the internet and how it's being misused by the wrong people.
1: I agree with you. I, I, I fear the fringe, um, (laughs) but becoming the majority, I think that already happened for four years or something. Yep. Um, but yeah, I know I don't know. I just I try to stay stay as positive as, as possible and I really do think that there are a lot of smart people doing what you're describing yeah. too and engaging politically more than I think this country ever has if you look historically like I think people are doing it. Maybe it's not quite at the speed we feel like we need, but people are people are engaging a lot. Maybe frustratingly <laughs> to to some, right? You know, right. who want who want us to shut up and talk about sports or music. But, yeah, I think you're right. I think you do, have to, you do have to have some faction of people who are challenging those people and, and um, playing whack-a-mole.
0: We'll get right back to the interview. But first, what's your favorite word? Damn. OK, last time Matt was on, he went with the word story, which is a great word for a songwriter. This time we get damn. Love it. So Middle English, late 13th century as a legal term to condemn, declare guilty or convict. And circa 1300, in the theological sense of doom to punishment in a future state. That's from the old French. It wasn't until the 16th century that damn started to be used profanely. And by the mid 18th century, the sort of profane sense began weakening. Uh, it was sort of used vaguely in, uh, you know, kind of unconventional speech phrases like not worth a damn, not to care a damn, not to give a damn. Uh, adjective arrived in 1775, to not give her care a damn by the 1760s, to be not worth a damn from 1817. Very versatile word. You're right. Speaking of great words,
1: you're going to learn today.
0: The word of the week is walrus. Why? Because the word quite literally means whale horse. And I'm very confused. In what universe does a walrus look like a horse? I'll give you a whale. Sure. I would have said maybe seal or sea lion, but if you want to go small whale, I see it. But horse? Yeah. The Dutch back in the 1650s must have been smoking some shit because walrus comes from the Dutch words walvis, meaning whale, and roos, meaning horse. And I'm starting to wonder what the hell kind of horses they got in the Netherlands. So cool walrus fact. The tusks... On a walrus are actually very long teeth, and they continue to grow throughout the animal's life, which leads me to another fact, which is that the scientific name for the walrus is Odobenus rosmaris, which means tooth-walking seahorse in Latin. So apparently the Latins didn't know what a horse looked like either. Okay, in a sentence. While the etymology of the word walrus says we should be thinking whale horse when we spot our whiskered, tusked friends, I see only Wilford Brimley. Now let's get back to the interview. Let's get back to the album because um, you mentioned how the last album was a breakup record, had a darker feel. This does feel like one that's written by someone who's traveling cross country for a new love. And um, I've met your your gorgeous girlfriend. She seems to inspire quite a bit of a bit this, of including this. Portuguese. Um, that you sing in on orange blood and of course the sweetness and the sort of young love vibes of bathroom light. So talk about how you write differently. One of my favorite quotes is the best work is done while the heart is breaking or overflowing. And I feel like that's, I mean, Adele is our greatest proof of that, right? She's like always on on a rough ride between being totally in love or falling apart. How did it feel different writing because you were in a different space?
1: Oh man. I was in such a different space the second record i had broken up with my long-term girlfriend i think like a week before we went into the studio so obviously it was fizzling out in the writing phase and then it came to a uh, halt right before whereas this one in a pandemic falling in love hoping that you know that feeling of like the chase and really hoping that like i could you know secure love i guess so it was a totally opposite experience. And I think when you're in those things, the cool thing, and maybe what you're describing um, about like writing being easier in those moments is like, you're so in it that you don't realize like, I'm making a thing. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, that, and that's the key, right? Is like not having that metacognition. Cause that's the kind of thing that kills writing is like, I'm writing about this thing and it's gonna be really good. Um, I think you just have to be, you know, a reporter more, you know, of just like, this is what's happening and it's insane. And everyone goes through this and yeah, I think flow. that, yeah, yeah, exactly. You get into a flow state.
0: NPR's Nisha Venkat wrote about orange blood, even if you've never been on the type of literal psychedelic journey, Mount joy weaves through in this song. Driving on- It might still move you to reflect sepia toned on what it's like to fly down the interstate with the great love of your youth. And when I read that, I actually thought you don't need a literal psychedelic journey because what we know about love is it actually floods your brain like an addictive drug. And that's why people, when they first fall in love, can't think of anything else. It literally renders them sort of useless. So you've got these parallel lines on the album of you being flooded with this feeling of affection and new love while simultaneously sort of truly writing about tripping and and psychedelics. Um, Was that in any way something that you recognized while you were creating?
1: Uh, You just gave us way too much credit, I think, (laughs) but, uh, and thank you to NPR. Um, I don't know. I I like to think like I've been writing songs for a long time and I really write my best songs when I'm just like 2 a.m., subconscious, strumming a guitar, and just letting it flow, I keep my phone on voice notes, I keep my voice recorder on, and just, you know, go back and like, listen to things on a plane ride and be like, that's really something, you know, even though in the moment, maybe it's just sort of gibberish or something. And I, I think that the only credit I'll give ourselves is that I think when you're, you know, raking around in your subconscious, like, that's, there's a lot of I don't understand you know the human subconscious and I think there's a lot of metaphor already built into um the way we sort of mask our ego and I I write about that a little bit and on this record too like how much of our personality is is like dumbing down I think are like probably very like poetic and um and metaphorical subconscious even these people who say like oh I don't have a artistic bone in my body. It's like, I think the human experience is like an incredible, you know, art display in so many ways all the time. So yeah, if you can like tap into that in some way, whether it's meditation or whatever it is, like, I think sometimes you you get lucky with parallels like
0: that. Would you say that you create from nothing most often well altered in some way and then edit when you're clearer?
1: Sometimes, but You know, it really it really depends. I I I increasingly smoke weed to go to bed. Um, (laughs) Okay, old man. Yeah, this is a confessional. (laughs) um, I'm I'm repenting for my sin. There you Um, go. But um, no, so I and I do a lot of writing at night. So I guess you could say that happens a decent amount. But I'm usually not like you know stumbling drunk or something when I'm writing. Like I'm I'm usually pretty. You're usually there. not
0: in Joshua Tree recreating any Parsons projects.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> and then that's a good example because I I wrote a lot of the songs about Joshua Tree, not actually in Joshua Tree. So if that gives you an idea.
0: Right. Um, you, the first song that you released was Lemon Tree and... It's about sort of leaving your body to music, but also like optimism. And I obviously turning you know lemons into lemonade and and all of the analogies that can be pulled from it. But it feels like uh, your recent Instagram quote was uh, instead of I just found a lemon tree. It's a bad day for my enemies. You said it's a bad year for my enemies. Like things are going awesome. The band is kicking ass. Is this sort of like the mantra for you, this idea of? um, creating joy or, or creating goodness by choice.
1: Yeah. I, when I was like in high school and into college, I was like extremely depressed or I, you know, I had the phase. I think a lot of people go through that and it, you know, it circles back every once in a while. The Sixers don't help.
0: Yeah. Um, really but uh, but
1: no, but uh, congrats
0: on Harden for a long-term deal. That's gonna work workout. Great.
1: Yeah, two years with a one-year option, you yeah, know, long term. Uh, I mean,
0: that's you're right. He won't be around for the second half. So you're right.
1: Chances enough. of
0: him fulfilling the deal are slim.
1: Pardon, if you're listening, I I will defend you for courtside tickets. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I I think, anyways, when you go, when you kind of come out the other side of that, like one of the things that really helped me with my depression and anxiety is like that that just like, um, the idea that happiness is a choice and, um, and that you can do it with the intention for other people. Like, I think that's really what lemon tree is about is like this realization that, you know, like I talked about, I think we all are really important to each other. And like, especially when you're in a relationship, there's a really intense, uh, like sense of that, where it's like, you can be having a really good day, but if your girlfriend or husband or wife or whatever it is, is like, absolutely going through it, like it'll pull you in. It'll take you, it'll take you into that world and you won't even necessarily know what's going on, but I'll find myself being very anxious and and whatever it is. And and that energy exchange between people is something that I think about a lot when I get really anxious is like, okay, trying to find my pathway back to joy for whether it's my girlfriend or my family or my friends or the bandmates and realizing that like you have this responsibility to like love yourself and take care of yourself, of course, but like, but also to other people to to be a leader, um, like positive energy, if you can be.
0: That's a fascinating to dissect because part of the issues that a lot of people who suffer from depression have is this, um, not so much sadness as nothingness, this feeling of deep apathy. And so to connect that way out to other people instead of yourself is probably more effective because in that moment you are not a valuable thing that is worthy of fixing, but other people around you continue to be. And so that's really, that's a really powerful thought. And so much of this album is about connecting to each other and the, what we owe each other, what we can do for each other. There's also some, I mean, Bathroom Light is super romantic. Don't It Feel Good is like such a good, just like vibes song for late night or for car rides or all of that. There's a couple I wanted to ask about is bang about, And I know what last time you were on, you told me that you don't like describing exactly what songs are about and you like to leave them up to people's interpretation. So in whatever vagaries are required to address my questions, you can just blow them off if you want to. But I felt like the instant that I heard Bang, it sounded like it was about mass shootings and gun violence.
1: Yeah, I wrote that was one of the first songs I wrote. I moved. Like I said, I moved to Philadelphia and my my brother was having a baby and he lives uh, in South Philly, or he did, he moved, I guess I can say this now, but he lived on a street called Montrose Street, which is mentioned in the song. And, you know, he had, uh, well, there was like a, a double homicide. It's not like necessarily a bad neighborhood, but um, and, like three in the afternoon, maybe like 50 yards from his house, two people were gunned down and he's like having a baby. And I'm just thinking, you know, the same exact thought that we're all thinking now is just like, at what point? is enough, enough. And uh, this, that song was written in, you know, 2020. And it just, it was almost like, I don't know, it made me nervous to put the album out because I, I thought it was going to be like, so on the nose. I mean, our album came out maybe a week after the Uvalde incident and it's just, you know, obviously just heartbreaking. And, but yeah, that, that's unfortunately a song that I guess will stay relevant until we, we can figure out how to. Right. Excellent.
0: There's a line, they ought to make a dance for when the world shits its pants. That feels like a reference to TikTok. That if we just made a stupid TikTok dance that people cared as much about as they did about talking about gun violence, we might find solutions. Goes bang.
1: Exactly. Yeah. We are so sucked into our phones that if we could, if someone, it feels like if someone could come up with a funny enough joke for, for, you know, we could get out of this.
0: Right. All we need is like the, uh, the, the ice bucket challenge of, you know, right. Like you need those ridiculous trends to take hold somehow to have these conversations.
1: the throw your gun in the ocean challenge. <laughs>
0: right. Although let's let's keep the ocean out of this. We already throw enough shit in the ocean.
1: <laughs> decent,
0: decent, decent idea. We can workshop it. It's a good start. So the last time I saw y'all was in Madison. And I think Lemon Tree was the only song off the new album uh, that was out at that point that you could play live. And thankfully, you slid me. Uh, a little early early look at at the full thing and as soon as I heard Johnson's song I was like god I wish that that had been out for the Madison show because it's such a sing-along vibe what has it been like live because I've not been able to get out to see you since you started being able to play the rest of the album
1: yeah that's a fun one we um we've only played maybe a handful of shows like five to ten shows on the after the albums come out um we've just that's such a goofy song. If you've heard it, it is, um, just an absolute, like I'm the goofiest guy in terms of like that, that was a, an accidental dick joke. Um, so live, we just try to make it as fun as possible. We've been like finding kind of sending our, um, crew out into the audience to find like the most, the fans who seem to be like, Digging it the most, and we bring them, try to bring them on stage uh, to dance around for. Johnson's amazing,
0: song. amazing! That's um, so funny. I like as soon as I heard it, I was like, I just am picturing how they. I almost thought of it like at the end of, for a while, their Counting Crows would end their shows with hanging around, and they would just bring up everybody that was backstage with them and just like throw down, and it became a party. Um, is is that what I saw a clip of on your Insta where there was a circle of you on stage?
1: Yeah, the same thing um, sort of happened to us as you were describing where we were uh, finishing up a tour and we had just played Johnson's song, I think for one of the first times and the opening band, um, shout out to Flip Turn and like our whole crew ran out onto the stage, not, um, not, not planned. planned. Wow, yeah. I
0: love it. Uh,
1: and it was just this really fun, um, really fun thing. And and we were like, okay, that's the song to kind of just like let people have fun it's such a goofy song for us because there was an inside joke about the word johnson which <laughs> had gotten so far removed from the dick euphemism yeah. that i wrote the lyric dance away because the johnson's coming
0: right yeah it's very um, on the nose actually it's on the dick actually oh, la, 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 oh, la,
1: It wasn't until our producer we recorded it. And he's like, this is like a weird dick joke. Right. And I was like, no. And he was like, are you serious? And I was like, I swear I was like, and I'm usually the one to be like making that joke. Right. And I I sat like staring at a wall for like 10 minutes because I love the song. And like, you know, imagine you make something you really like and you realize there's a giant dildo in it and you're like, Oh my God. and um, but then you lean into it and you just make yeah. it fun, you know, it's, yeah. so it's been good.
0: I think I like literally texted you and Sam am the first time I heard it. I'm like, this is about dicks, right? And you're like, yeah, unfortunately, kind of, but it's <laughs> sort of a long story. Um, but when you write a chorus like that, that like, oh, la, 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 oh, la, and you know, everyone's going to like sing along. Does it hit you right away? Are you like, oh, this is catchy as hell. Like I, I hit it. I nailed it. Or do you need to share it with others to like know that somebody else thinks the weird words you made up in your brain are good?
1: You know, I'll give um, Sam a lot of credit for this because a lot of the process is like, I'll play something like that for him on guitar and he has a really good ear for like, this is worth spending the next 50 hours on or something. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, he's usually like, if he, if he likes it, then, um, then I feel like we're in good shape.
0: Well, and that song's interesting because it is super playful, but it starts out with like heavy distortion you know, like the vibe starts out and you don't expect it to go where it does. It's a little dark and like you're moving through a dark hallway, sort of like the storytelling of the song. And then, it, you know, bursts open. Let's talk about Evergreen and Creed. Creed is in the music video. Creed has become a fan of the band and a friend of the band. This is, of course, Creed from The Office, um, whose real name is Creed. (laughs) His real name is Creed Bratton. How did that happen? And, And tell me about the video for for that.
1: So Creed is uh, an amazing uh, musician himself and his music career preceded his acting career. He was in a band called The Grassroots, which in the 60s had like a number one hit, you know, against the backdrop of like some really big bands on the charts that everybody everybody knows and remembers, like Led Zeppelin and stuff like that. So he was like having a moment out in LA before the office thing. And he still does that now under his own project called just creed bratton and um our tour manager tour manages his music project so the music had gotten shared and he we got word that he wanted to come up and play guitar with us at we had a show at the greek yeah it was amazing at the greek theater in los angeles and we were trying to do something special you know having seen the movie uh, get him to the Greek. We were like, this is a big moment. We yeah, have yeah. to, uh, we have to like smoke a Jeffrey or bring someone on stage.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah. And so, touch a wall for a while, just like leave the audience wondering.
1: <laughs> e- exactly. So, when we heard that like Creve was down, it was like an instant no brainer. And he came out on our song Let Loose and just like ripped a solo. And I was just standing there, like having one of those moments. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what is going on? How did we get here? And then, you know, he just, we, we actually we were lucky we had a day off in LA the next day, which is like so rare. And he was super generous with his time and like came and hung out with us. We drank whiskey with him and just like had a had a time. And he's so cool and he's such a great story of like perseverance and an inspiring guy, so. When um,
0: great stories, I mean, you guys did an Instagram live together when the video came out and you were like, yeah, I think I I suggested that you ask if he dated any starlets at the time of his peak music fame. But he was like, which ones didn't I date? (laughs) All of his stories involved him in like a hot tub with 80 women, just like crushing the game across Hollywood, like just this whole other life that I, I told your tour manager, I need to get him on the podcast. I need to dive deep into Creed Bratton's previous life before the office.
1: You should. I'll happily link that. He would. Yeah. He would. He would be such a great interview.
0: So the video for Evergreen, he's just trying all these new different things. And one of the most powerful lines in the song is, "If I knew the way life would be pointless." Love, of course it's gonna- It's a really joyful fun song but there's some pretty serious energy like throughout it
1: yeah um in terms of the video this guy um our friend francis galupi um and creed like they put their heads together and you know like i'm a big proponent of like i shouldn't tell people who make films how to make films and people shouldn't <laughs> tell me to like write songs about things that's like one of my right. biggest pet peeves is like <laughs> why don't you write a song about it i'm like I, you know I don't know because eventually <laughs> I'm gonna die and I don't have, have much time. Right. <laughs> um, but you know, um, they they did a great job. And uh, wow, that was really dark. I'm sorry. You can ask me to write songs about things. Um, but um, yeah, yeah, the video they did a great job. And uh, and yeah, they're just he's so spontaneously funny. Like the best compliment I could think of for Creed is that he is like genuinely. And maybe I just haven't been around comedians enough, but he is like so quick and so funny in real life that it's just like it's so easy. It's so believable that like he would be that character on The Office. So having him in a music video is is, your setup for success.
0: That's one of the reasons The Office was so great, because the casting people literally just cast like a couple regular ass people that they just were like. Yeah, you're just the person. So we're going to not look for an actor to pretend to be that person. And we're just going to pick the person. And a lot of times in that show, like they would have a little joke that was kind of real about Creed's previous life or what he'd already done uh, before he ended up in the office. You mentioned the last time we got together that you date your life in sports, that it feels more healthy and joyful than dating it based on like major news events. And I'm worried for you um, Mm. because how do you now track your big life events with specific Sixers disappointments, there are so many and they seem to happen every year that they almost muddy together. And I worry about your concept of time and place.
1: It's we're not in a good place uh, or time. Uh, But uh, (laughs) no, I, I I actually like, I try to um, there's something about the Philadelphia sports experience. That's really specific where it's like, it's, I don't know if you ever watched the show like Silicon Valley. Yeah. Um, yeah. This where guy- yeah. Where it's like, exactly. But it's like, <laughs> we're never by the end of the season, like it's going to completely come undone. Um, and it's That's such I'm, a
0: good analogy.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, I feel it in my spirit and in my, like that, like, I know this Mount joy thing, like, it's going to like, fit, like we're in the middle of the season and it, it feel, I'm always fearful that like, you know, like, I don't know, like my ACL is just gonna go flying into the third row or something like that. And <laughs> I feel like there's something there's something nice about the consistency of failure. Um <laughs> that's that so just, sad.
0: Just You've allows through, you to settle in. You have like Stockholm syndrome from your sports team. You're just no. like accepting it.
1: You know what I'll say is that I've been through the uh, you know, obviously the, the Eagles won a Super Bowl relatively recently, and that was yeah. incredible. I do think like I'll take the, this type of fandom. We're like, in all seriousness, the Sixers, my honest opinion is that I, I think if Embiid doesn't break both his shooting thumb and his <laughs> literal face, um, <laughs> I think we would have been, you know, even more competitive against the Heat who are a very good team and, you know, made, who knows? I, I always feel like the injury thing is sort of this thing that gets cast over in sports because you're like, Oh, he's always injured. But I do think there is a certain amount of like statistical chance and and, and luck that goes into injury. Obviously, guys are more injury prone. I get that, but you know uh, we're about to win that series. There's 20 seconds left in the game, and Siakam throws like the people's elbow into Embiid's face, and that changes the course of of the playoffs for us. So I I think there's reason to be optimistic about the Sixers. Not to mention, I've rooted for Phillies like. Baseball, like all different sports where they've just been horrible consistently. Yeah. Like no playoffs aren't even in.
0: You guys question. are in it. You guys are in it. You're relevant. Embiid is an MVP candidate. Like you you get to be enjoying entire seasons, even if the end is tough.
1: And I'll say this, Embiid in terms of sports, and I really do love like sports teams, even and players, especially like outside of Philadelphia, because I just love watching athletes. Um, not in like a romantic way, but
0: it's allowed if you do. They a lot yeah. of what they do is sort of arousing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, but I really do love like watching just sports in general too outside of Philly, but I truly in a as unbiased as I can be, like he imbues such a joy to root for and I feel super fortunate to like be a fan of his team and he's genuinely a funny guy. I've never met him unfortunately, but he he makes me laugh off the court and he is like such a good player. I mean, if he can stay healthy, like I, I really, maybe I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, but I think a healthy Embiid gives any team a chance to go all the way. Yeah,
0: I totally agree. All right, so we got we got the plugs in for Harden and Embiid, so we've got two routes now to the courtside tickets. Um, is there anyone <laughs> <I'll> else? Like- <laughs>
1: I'll take like anywhere in the stadium, actually.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if the band keeps having the success that it does, I think you will start to find that those things come pretty easily for you. So it's always awesome to talk to you. You know, I was going to make this whole pod without breaking the news that I'm going to Europe now when I was going to be seeing you at Red Rocks and the Salt Shed in Chicago. And now I've got to figure out a creative place to find you. I've been looking at the tour and now I'm gonna have to do some traveling to make it work. But you know, Lake Como in Switzerland it's a real tough call.
1: You could do worse. That sounds pretty good. I, I might be breaking news here, but the other there may or may not be a way to watch the the show potentially from a secure internet connection in a, on a boat in an international in a
0: location <laughs> <laughs> all right well news not broken just teased and we will wait for the official word on that to come congratulations on everything the album is freaking rad and i'm so happy watching your crowds get bigger and bigger and people catching on to how awesome you guys are
1: yeah thank you sarah thanks for having me
0: that's what she said oh yeah One more thing. This is a place for rants, raves, everything in between. Sometimes I'll complain. Sometimes I'll tell you to read something, listen to something, watch something, tell you a story. This week, Orange Blood, Mount Joy's album. Buy it. Google it. YouTube it. Spotify it. Go see Mount Joy live. Support live music. Support good music. Be cooler than your friends. Be cooler than your enemies. Orange Blood, fire it up. You can always tweet me at Sarah Spain if you've got great guest suggestions, questions, or more. And you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe and follow. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please. Give it a review. Maybe you'll show up on the pod. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me.
1: That's what she said.